Well, that's that's the that's the kind of thing about traveling, isn't it? Particularly when you look back retrospectively at places and you think like that that will never ever be the same again. That was a pivotal moment, and everything changed from that moment on. <laughs> Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is about the ways travel can give you a frame of reference for understanding world events. Specifically, it's tied into an experience I had in a desert monastery in Syria more than 20 years ago. The place was called Der Mar Musa, and it was overseen by a charismatic Italian priest called Father Paolo D'Olio. Unquestioned hospitality was one of the core principles of this remote monastery in Syria, and it was so popular with vagabonding travelers at the time that it felt like something of a youth hostel, with young people sharing food and playing music alongside Christian monks and Muslim villagers and other backpackers from all over the world. This place made a big impression on me and has come to haunt my imagination. I've always wanted to write about it somehow, and when Syria descended into civil war in 2011, I obsessively searched for news about the monastery. Turns out Father Paolo disappeared while trying to negotiate the release of captives from Islamic extremists in central Syria in 2012. Then, earlier this year, when I was reading the book Letter to a Stranger in anticipation of interviewing Colleen Kinder for Deviate episode 184, I realized that the one stranger from my travels I would write a letter to was Father Paolo. I searched around, and it turns out that an Irish writer named Sean O'Neill wrote a book about Paolo called A Church of Islam, which came out in 2019. Sean is my guest on the podcast today. I interviewed him via Skype from his current home in Poland. Together we talk about Father Paolo's mission and how his monastery operated on the principles of hospitality, friendship, physical labor, and interfaith dialogue. Turns out Father Paolo was much more influential than I realized back in the day. He actually helped arrange Pope John Paul II's visit to Syria in 2001. Sean and I talk about how tolerant and multicultural Syria was, despite news headlines focusing on regime repression and Islamic extremism. We talk about how places like Der Marmusa emphasized ideas over orthodoxies and religious dialogues over religious debates. We talk about our own personal experiences there and how my own first encounter with Father Paolo came after I got bitten by a dog the monks kept there. For context about both the monastery and the political history of Syria, I've added some links in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Sean and I start by talking about Syrian hospitality and how we both came to learn of Father Paolo's open-door policy to travelers at Der Marmusa Monastery. Let's listen in. Uh, so, Sean, you know, I went to Der Marmusa as a backpacker in the year 2000, 22 years ago, and I didn't know about it because of its historical significance or its religious mission. It, there were just sort of buzz about it on the backpacker circuit. I was living on about $10 a day in the Middle East, and mm -hmm. people were coming back out of this isolated monastery um, outside of Damascus and saying that you had to go. And so I went, and my experience... Uh, was really affecting. It was it was a special experience, and so when I learned that you had written a book about this monastery, albeit in in more um, tragic circumstances, I was really drawn to it. And so I might start out just by asking, how did Dare Marmusa become get on your radar as a traveler? Well, it's actually the pretty much the exact same process, uh, give or take a decade. Um, I was in Syria 
at the end of January, beginning of February 2011. So literally those moments before uh, that cataclysmic kind of upheaval kind of took over the country, you know. And uh, it was the same thing. We were staying in Damascus and our gracious uh, host said, um, you know, you really you really got to go here. Uh, now I'm a kind of lapsed Catholic myself. I, I'm not practicing. And I was kind of like, well, it's a monastery. Okay, fine. But actually the journey there was a bit of an odyssey in itself, you know. Um, and it was very, very impressive, I have to say. I mean, uh, just the location alone, you know, perched atop the mountains there in that part of the desert was was really, really impressive. Um as was Father Paolo uh, upon initially meeting him. He was rather charismatic and, how can we say, a little bit um, on the tempestuous side, but hmm. a, a larger-than-life character uh, by all means. Uh, but no, it was pure chance, actually, Rolf, pure chance that, that I, I stumbled upon the place. It was for me, too. I'm curious specifically about the journey. Did you have to walk the last bit in, or was there a road that went all the way to the monastery in 2011? Uh, as far as I know, we took a bus to Nebek. Okay. And from there, we basically kind of had a chat with a few locals and ended up kind of like taking a kind of a, a share taxi type thing down to the base of the mountain and then kind of walked up the last 20 minutes up the steps, you know. That, that but, sounds um, about the same as mine. Did you have to crawl yeah. in through a three foot high door? Uh, well, one part of it we did, but it was more open, I think, when I arrived. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was more open. So, but they were we we kind of arrived around lunchtime, so they were serving um they were serving dinner, and there was a real kind of buzz about the place. You know, it was like, um, I mean, obviously there were uh, uh you know priests and, and nuns in the area, but there was just also a lot of young people, which was kind of surprising for me. You know, people playing guitar by the uh, on the wall and people just kind of like um, doing stuff together. And it was a, there was a really, really nice atmosphere, you know, which kind of took me by surprise a little bit because I thought it would be very kind of, um, kind of stern and kind of like um, uh, serious, but it, it really was a very, very convivial atmosphere. Now, were these young people locals or were they travelers? Or? No, they were travelers, actually. Okay. Yeah, they were travelers. Yeah, yeah. So they were they were people from, from all over the world, really. Like, And, and it seemed like they had been stay, staying there a few nights, you know. Um, and obviously, the, the three tenets of, of, of Marmusa and the, the monastery that, that, uh, that Paolo, you know, was renovated in the early 80s were hospitality. And that was the, that was the key driver, mm. really. So basically, whoever shows up at your door, you welcome. Mm -hmm. um, very, very similar to the uh, Islamic kind of idea of guests are from God, you know. Um, and I really didn't understand the idea of hospitality until I went to Syria. I, mm. I think it completely redefined my idea of hospitality, what hospitality was. And it made me think that in some places, the less that people have, the less people have, the more they give, you know. And... Uh, and kind of Marmusa kind of uh, kind of echoed that sentiment, I think, as well. It was just a very um, so. The other two tenets of of the whole idea of the monastery were um, friendship, uh, which obviously links into the whole idea of dialogue and interfaith dialogue with uh, with, with with the Muslim parishioners parishioners in the area. And the third one was manual labor. So hmm. that was basically people pitching in. Kind of links in a little bit with the whole kind of Sufi idea of kind of like meditation and mindfulness as well. I'm a bit of a gardener myself, and hmm. from what I can remember, they had a bit of a, an olive grove there and some fruit trees, and, and people were kind of busy 
doing things and uh, it was it was yeah I, I mean it was similar when you were there was it it was it was very international uh, in fact um, there was it just had a real appeal to backpackers of and I was one back in the day there was actually a Swiss backpacker who had decided to move into a cave at Marmusa. He loved it so much that he'd been there for six months. And I'm not sure what the monks thought of him, but he, it was important to him. And the library there just had, it had religious books from the Christian tradition, but it had the Bhagavad Gita. And um, I read uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer, like the cyberpunk novel at Der Marmusa okay. while I was there. And so uh, we think, and, and much like you may have thought that this place was, oh, it's a monastery. There's going to be these very serious religious people there. It was, it was sort of to me like the most enjoyable and isolated youth hostel because there were um, Argentines and, and Germans and Brazilians, and there were um, people, some people who were serious about religion, but then some people weren't, even to the point that, that some people were being sort of standoffish in that European way towards religion. In, in my first book, I, I talk about a woman from Canada uh, who I. Met there actually, I didn't specify it in, in my book Vagabonding, but she um, she just didn't want to go to the church services. And I'm thinking, you, you went all this way, and you don't want to go to the church, you don't want to go to the chapel services just because of some principle that applies to Canada. So um, I, I guess it, it was interesting that there were there were atheists as well as devout people, there were is uh, Muslims as well as Christians there, and it was really remarkable. And we'll as the conversation goes on, we'll get into this a little bit more because specifically of those pillars, I, I want to talk about manual labor, labor, which I did some while we were there, and hospitality <laughs> as a principle. But zooming out to Syria in general, you make a good point because you know Arabs are famously hospitable culturally. I think Absolutely. it's 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 sort of a virtue there, and I loved Egypt. I was a big fan of Egypt. But Egypts have been seeing tourists for 5,000 years and are a little bit more jaded, I thought. Whereas totally in Syria, agree. there was just so much exuberance and so much interest in me. So talk a little bit about Syria in general and your experience uh, as, an, as an outsider, as an Irish person in this Yeah, there was a place. genuine, there was a, a real genuineness there in terms of the people's welcome, like that really, really kind of hit me hard, you know. I mean, we, we'd need to take buses or trains or, or, or just, you know, have like sightseeing trips planned and we'd have to say, okay, let's, let's go 40 minutes before we need to be there so that because you can be guaranteed someone's going to invite you in for a tea mm. or chat or whatever. And I totally agree with you with the the comparison with Egypt is interesting because I found, uh, like as you said, it was a path. Well, uh, uh, you know, people had been going there for a long time in Egypt, and I felt like Syria had just been announced as part of these axes of evil countries, mm. and people were so touched that you actually went there and and actually kind of like spent your money there and wanted to see what the country was like, you know, um, and make up your own mind. And and I, ju I just there were so many unique kind of moments with people. Uh, which really kind of bowled me over just in terms of, of, of their, their kindness, you know. And, and that's kind of the one that was one of the kind of motivators behind actually writing the book because I felt like what's happened to those people when war broke out mm. in 2011? What, what happened to them? Are they still alive? Um, are they displaced like the six million people that had to leave the country over the last 10 years? Um, what are they doing now? Um, and uh, I guess the book was a little bit of a eulogy for them as well. Those com completely random, uh, you know, events or acts of kindness from from strangers. Uh, and as I said, like you know, I, I feel like in the West we we have a very kind of like a limited view of what it means to. 
to host someone, uh, to, to welcome them into your home, to feed them, uh, to water them, to, to accommodate them. Um, yeah, there were so many random things. I remember a, a young uh, boy in Aleppo. It was very cold. It was very, very cold when they were actually in Palmyra and it snowed in the desert mm. when we were there. Wow. And I remember complimenting somebody on their ear muffs and he just took them off and gave them and offered them to me you know hmm. and uh this is this tarof kind of thing that they have in 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 the muslim world where someone will offer you something three times before you can actually uh you know accept it hmm. Uh, hmm. but at the same time it was just very uh um yeah it was very touching so but lots of random things like that you know really made my head turn yeah, I think that's one reason why Syria sticks with you. And, you know, it stuck with me so that I actually looked up Dermar Musa and, and, and trying to find out what happened to Father Paolo when the violence broke out in Syria. And I, I continue to, and that's yeah. actually how I found your book, is that for years now, it's sort of this place, it charmed me and now it's haunted me um, that I came back and I came back and then I realized earlier this year, actually, that someone, you, had written a book about Dermar Musa. And so I think that's tied in to that, that love and attraction we feel as travelers towards these places. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was a eulogy for, for, for a Syria that really was no more as well. You know, I mean, already um, when I was there in, in February of uh, 2011, um, you know, the, the Arab Spring was already rumbling mm. uh, in Tunisia and Egypt. And um, I remember in a hotel, a, lo a very, very modest hotel lobby in Aleppo, um, watching the events uh, unfold mm. in Tahrir Square in, in, in Cairo, and people saying to us, no, this is never going to happen here. You know, people are sleeping in Syria. And... Um, yeah, I really, it was, it was, it was, you know, I, I couldn't even have predicted the seismic upheaval that was going to come after that. It was, a, it was one of those momentous kind of times to go somewhere. People ask me, they're like, why did you go then? And I, to this day, I can't actually answer that question. I don't know what made me get on a plane and go to Syria in January, February 2011. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I was there in 2000, it felt very momentous historically too. Maybe you can't go to that part of the world without feeling like you're part of the texture of something momentous. But this was sort of a new uh, piece had come about in Palestine and um, Hafez Assad, the father Assad was still alive. Uh, he would be dead a few months after I visited yeah. Syria. And That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, so now, Syria people associate it with a kind of Islamic extremism. But I met so many, not just you know, um, Syriac Christians. I met several different sects of Christian while I was there. I met several different um, sects of of Muslim people when I was there. That it was, it seemed like a, just a place. It, it seemed like a special place, and. Um, of course, I was there at a very optimistic historical time. You were there at a very pessimistic uh, historical time, and it got worse. So, I, I guess just and, as uh, how did you find how did you find the popularity of Assad when you were there? Um, in terms of were people talking openly about things? Because that was a very interesting period in, in Syrian uh, in Syrian uh, history, particularly after uh, Hafaz uh, uh, his father died, mm. um, because there was a momentum for a while. Um, among uh, civil societies and among intellectuals and, and, and academics and stuff like that, where they, they really wanted reform 
You know, they wanted um, less far-reaching powers for the security services. They wanted better wages. They wanted political pluralism. They wanted all of that stuff because the country's still under martial law, right? It's under martial, martial law for half a century. Right. And um, so, and but you know, I think it just moved too quickly, and there was there was a lot of pushback from Assad in the end. Uh, and it didn't really happen. Uh, but that was a very kind of a pivotal period as well, around 2000, you know. Mm. Um, but it wasn't meant to be. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it was, it was such an optimistic time. But And the only time I really um, felt the presence of the secret police was when I was in the Kurdish part of Syria, up in the northeast part of Syria, sort of near okay. the, the Iraq border. Um, and, you know, the Kurdish have their own separatist uh, interests and their own political interests. And I, I sort of felt more self-consciousness there, whereas in other parts of Syria, maybe I just wasn't attuned to the governmental thing. And we didn't get into a lot of political conversations. I think I talked as much about the National Basketball Association um, as I did about <laughs> politics there, just because Syrians were so, they just felt so global and interested in everything that I don't know as a young backpacker that I really appreciated the historical moment that, that I was in. It could have been a little bit different for you. Well, that's that's the that's the kind of thing about traveling, isn't it? P particularly when you look back retrospectively at places and you think like that that will never ever be the same again. That was a pivotal moment, and everything changed from that moment on. And I think, um, yeah, you 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 glance back at history and realize uh, how momentous moments are. And I think um, I think that period in 2011, where protests protests were already happening then, hmm. um, and I think it was very much like at the beginning. It was very much grassroots. People were kind of fed up. Uh, there was no proxy interests at that stage. There was no Islamists. There was no kind of like nefarious actors kind of like, you know, uh, in, in the backgrounds. It was genuine, I think, at the hmm. beginning. All of this stuff has relevance inside of the Dear Marmusa Monastery because obviously it was in a very isolated place, but it was still very much of Syria and Syrian culture. So... Um, did you get a, like when you were in the monastery yourself, were your conversations about things like politics? Were they about things like religion? I know you said you're not religious or was it more about the ideals to tell me about that experience that you had in the monastery and why it became memorable enough for you that you eventually wrote a book about it? Uh, well, as I said, my time in the monastery was very brief and everything, but it was really, um, uh, I, I think the formal interfaith dialogue seminars that they kind of organized there were a bit of a charade in a way. I think they, I don't think they really achieved anything because they were always kind of, there was always someone in from the intelligence services kind of there. Hmm. And well, Explain uh, and to I, my listeners who might not know what an interfaith dialogue is. Uh, so basically, interfaith dialogue is a dialogue that was um, kind of uh, carried out by Paolo. This was his kind of initiative um, uh, from the from the very onset, basically. And um, it was what he was trying to do was he was in trying to encourage um, uh, local imams and Christian leaders and Catholic uh, leaders to come together to the monastery and to talk about not what uh, differentiates people or religions, but what actually kind of like um, uh, what they have in common. Mm. So it was a way to kind of uh, to be more inclusive uh, and to kind of reach out to the religious other. And and uh, so he actually wrote a theological treatise called um, 
um, lover of Islam, believer in Jesus. Hmm. And uh, his whole thing uh, was was going to based around inclusivity and uh, trying to basically love your neighbor. I mean, it's a very simple idea. Um, but I think he had a, no, a lot of overlaps with uh, the message of Jesus and stuff as well. And he, he definitely was uh, an ardent uh, follower. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically, I think I don't know how effective they were. I'll be very honest with you. I think mm. uh, they were they were limited in scope because if you have a member of the Secret Services in any kind of like meeting, then you're not really going to be able to talk about um, social and political issues, which which are things that were uniting people ultimately in Syria at that stage. You know, mm. everyone had the same problems. The GDP was very very low. People had problems of you know, petrol and gas prices were kind of through the roof. Um, people were struggling, and it was hard. You know, and uh, obviously people had family and and friends maybe who had been uh, uh, arrested or tortured by the the security services. Everyone had a story to tell. But in that kind of atmosphere, it's not conducive to being open and kind of like, you know, talking freely about stuff. So I think really the true dialogue happened in a very informal kind of casual context where people were just kind of like hanging out in the monastery. Local Muslim kids would come up um, there'd be backpackers there. And that's where I think the, the real work happened. You know, two people washing the dishes together mm. uh, or two people kind of making cheese uh, or, or, or overseeing things. I think that was the that was the really effective um, dialogue that was happening, the kind of the, the dialogue of everyday life, they called it, as opposed to anything formal or rigid or kind of like a system, you know? Yeah, that, that that's good to hear because that sort of dovetails with what I did. I, I washed dishes. That was one of my jobs there. The, the idea uh-huh. is that you come in and you enjoy the hospitality of Dermar Musa, but you also do work. I also shoveled a lot of uh, goat excrement, um, according oh, to my channel. Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, that's important, actually. The the, the goats. Uh, yeah, the, the, of course they milked the goats and they were making. Uh, was Butros there making the cheese when you were there? I'm not sure when he arrived, but I don't exactly remember the the cheese. Guy. That that actually rings a bell. Um, yeah. but there, there were a lot of personalities. There was a guy named Jihad. I think he was. We think of hey, and Jihad is a great guy. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, that's great. He was still there. Actually, I, I remember him distinctively because he was he was sort of seemed like a dreamer. He was a really young guy, and he 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 sang the a welcome song to me in the tune of Hotel California. Uh, that sounds like Jihad, all right? Yeah, I mean he's a really great, wonderful human being. Um, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of him. Um, <laughs> Well, that's great to hear that he was still there 10 years later because he was such a charismatic, he seemed like a kid, he seemed like a really young guy to me. But So Boutros was an interesting character because mm-hmm. um, he was the guy in charge of the cheese and he was mm-hmm. Syrian Orthodox from Hasake okay. Okay. and a big football fanatic. And his local team were Al Jazeera, but mm-hmm. obviously not the not the TV station from Qatar. And um, he had an interesting story, he studied to be a lawyer, but wasn't working out for him. And he came to the monastery in, in 96, I think. Um, and he was he was basically chased off the premises by Daloli, who he basically just told him to get out. Um, and uh, he had no time for, uh, obviously, I mean, it was Syrian Orthodox, so it was maybe a little bit more complicated than normal, right? Mm. Um, but actually, he was so stubborn that he actually ended up coming back and... Uh, and um, much to the chagrin of, of, of Dalolio, who said, like, you know, I kicked you out and you're back again. But actually, <laughs> kind of, that, kind of, that kind of appealed to him, actually. He kind of liked that kind of stubborn pig-headedness, and he actually agreed mm-hmm. to try him out for a week, and he's still there, or at least as far as I know he is, yeah. 
Yeah, no, there, there's so many textures. I'm, I'm glad to hear that some of the same personalities will, were still there 10 years after mine. But I think, um, I think there's, a, there's a saying from the Desert Fathers that, you know, basically the monks are supposed to provide hospitality as if Jesus is visiting. And one of the Desert Fathers said he was so tired of it. It's like, Jesus, is it you again? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. And, and, well, actually, <laughs> yeah, actually, there's an interesting story. Uh, about one of the sisters who came there. Um, I'm trying to remember her name now, but uh, she came and she was a little bit critical, actually, of the whole idea of open-door hospitality Hmm. all the time because they were getting kind of inundated by people who were backpacking and different things, and they were struggling a little bit, actually, to kind of facilitate it, you know? And uh, and she was kind of... She kind of butted heads with Del Olio saying, hey, you know what, like... I don't know if we can keep doing this, but there was absolutely no compromise with him on this. So this was one of the pillars mm. of his idea of his of his ideology and hospitality. There was no compromise on that. It had to be. There was no other way around it. So um, I think she ended up kind of leaving and and and, and going to Milan or somewhere. But um, but yeah, he was he was very adamant about that. You know. Yeah. No, he created an interesting texture because I think a lot of it, uh, the, the, the just the place ended up capturing the imagination of, of, you know, like young European and North American backpackers who previously had not taken religion seriously. But yet there's this interesting texture that uh, just how what it's like to interact with people who are constantly rotating through. It's one thing to live at Der Marmousse. It's, it's another thing to see a new face every three days with a backpack on his shoulder. So. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's true. And um, But the thing is, it was quite an effective uh, promotional kind of like uh, kind of uh, implement as well because, you know, people were going off and saying, you really got to go to this place. It's amazing. There's this very charismatic mm. Italian guy who shouts at people sometimes and is, you know, uh, uh, is, is a cur- very charismatic charismatic and and he has this kind of monastery uh, that's they're focusing on friendship and hospitality demystification of the religious other um you know a conversation not conversion and uh it's a, it was a fascinating place you know and uh, i think that was a, a great pr tool for them for the guys because people mm. people came back and with stories and told their friends and and they created a real buzz around the place you know yeah, no, it, it was um, that that it was the place to go. If you the, the whisper circuit of, of backpackers said go to this place because it's like no other place you've been before, um, and they actually gave me a little stone hut. But one one strange detail: this is actually how I met Father Paolo, is that a Saint Bernard dog had given birth to puppies like the day before I arrived. And she was staying right by my hut, and I kept growling at me, and I kept asking people like Jihad to move her, and they didn't move her. Well, eventually the dog bit me, and it wasn't until the dog bit oh, me no. that, that I was seen. Like, like I was just another guy who would be gone in two days. But then they Ooh. felt bad when the dog bit me, and so I actually met Father Paolo while he was uh-huh. cleaning my dog bite. Uh, you and got it was, an audience. <laughs> yeah, well, I got an audience with Father Paolo because <laughs> they obviously, like, I was a guy who they were interested in, but they knew I would be gone in two days like all the other backpackers, but they loved this dog and they loved her puppies. And, you know, she didn't bite me because she was being malicious. She was biting me because she was worried about her, her puppies. And she was, she had had her puppies right in front of my, my little hut, my little stone house where I stayed. So it's so, it was so ironic in my memory that I met the, 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 the visionary of this monastery when the beloved dog who had babies bit me on the leg and he cleaned my wound. So it was part of that. He cleaned your... <laughs> yeah. That's a funny story. Yeah. It's a, and did you take notes or anything when you were traveling there? Did you kind of have a travel journal or something? I, I was actively travel writing. It was at the beginning of my travel writing mm-hmm. career. Um, and oh, I was nice. writing for an American publication called Salon. But after the 
NASDAQ crashed, the tech market crashed, they discontinued their travel section. So I never wrote about uh, Syria. So in part, this my experience there and in other parts of Syria has always haunted my memory because I've never expressed it through writing. And that could be part of why I wanted to interview you today, Sean, is that yeah. I've always, I've had this on my mind, yet I've never expressed it in writing despite my notes and my memories. Maybe you should have written the book, Rolf. <laughs> no, but actually going back to the hospitality idea, you know, that was actually one of the, the key um, uh, um, kind of conflicts as well, in a way, because if you think about like unconditional hospitality, when Syria kind of like lapsed into civil war, the monastery was also giving shelter to political dissidents hmm. and victims of torture. Uh, and that was even before the war, actually. Uh, and so, you know, those gestures of kindness and compassion, I guess, which they are, which, I mean, the whole community would have espoused, would be very, very partisan acts that people would, you know, I would say that um, they definitely put them on the radar. And, and I think part of the reason possibly why, why Paolo was asked to leave by Assad in 2012. So let's talk about that that, that timeline, because... I didn't even know who Paolo was. I just heard that this was an awesome place in that sort of vague backpackery way. And then mm-hmm. he, he had such a presence. He, he, he It was almost intimidating how much gravitas Paolo had. And I didn't mm. meet him until a dog bit me. Um, yet it was his philosophy that drove that place, which really was in a way that went beyond the dictates of religion. It went into the spiritual heart of his own religious convictions as a Christian. And so... Why don't you give us the timeline on what happened to Paolo after this uh, Syrian revolution happened? Because he was asked to leave, but then he came back. So he did. Yeah, I mean, he. um, Yeah. So the the full timeline is basically he was studying Arabic in Damascus. He ended up discovering Marmous in the early 80s. Then uh, um, he started the IFD uh, work in the early 2000s. And yeah, so basically he. I guess his relationship with with Bashar al-Assad started to fracture um, because he he wrote something, uh, he wrote a treatise called Consensual Democracy around 2011 as well. Hmm. And again, again, the same thing I talked about before where he was pleading for for more pluralism and opening things up. Um, And I think, you know, I think Assad made a couple of big mistakes. I think he was popular as a leader, but I think the system was highly unpopular. Hmm. Um, and I think he conflated, he, he, he confused, I think yeah, there was a confusion of the two, I think. Uh, but anyway, he didn't do anything. Uh, and so what happened was, I mean, I guess he was haranguing him in some way. Uh, Dalorio was kind of like um, uh, taking in these victims of regime torture, profoundly partisan thing to do. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he said openly, I'm not suited for silence. You want me to shut up? I'm not going to shut up, basically, you know, because for him, silence was com- complicity, you know. Right. And so this was around. So Syria started to kind of fracture around 2011, mid 2011. There was actually, you know, he was such a figurehead in Syria that there was actually a march uh, um, in, in, in a couple of cities uh, from the information I can gather. Uh, with um, with Paolo's um, image, uh, a lot of people had pictures or, no or, or posters. Oh. Yeah, yeah, really. So um, uh, this was at the very kind of early days because he was someone who kind of united people, um, and he was a flawed character as well. And people, he was very well known in Syria, you know, and people really kind. 
kind of warm to that, you know. Plus, he was also kind of like not towing the government line. A lot of the people in the church um, and a lot of religious figures kind of like towed the Baptist line, and and he didn't. And and that was really refreshing for people, you know, that kind of cavalier attitude towards his own personal safety, uh, just not trying to sugarcoat things. He wasn't a politician. He was brutally... Uh, he was very brutally, he was brutally direct sometimes, so much, too much so, maybe some people would say, you know. So what happened around um, 2012, mid-2012 was I think the UN presented like a peace plan in around May, uh, Kofi Annan, and and obviously nothing happened. It was rejected and Syria continued to kind of like uh, unravel and and he was eventually asked to leave Syria by... I think he got a letter from from one of the churches saying, hey, you know what, it's dangerous for you now, you need to get out. And just to give you an idea, like he came back in completely, you know, illegally. Um, and he was traveling around with this free Syrian army kind of uh, uh, group who were doing kind of interviews for a pro-rebel TV station at the time. Hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, if I... Actually, I'm really, really interested in the whole idea of sacrifice and martyrdom and and risk and, and how far are you willing to go for your ideals and stuff like that. You know, that's something that really interests me. And, um, you know, a few months previously, there was two Orthodox prelates, a Syrian bishop, Orthodox bishop and a Greek Orthodox uh, metropolitan of Aleppo who were abducted. Now, if you abducted a religious figure back then, you were getting $50,000 ransom and that was, you know, you could be tortured uh, if you were lucky. Mm. And, uh, you know, he was well aware of what was going on there in the area, you know, he was a prominent figure. And um, so basically he was invited by the Free Syrian Army who just taken over Al-Raqqa in 2013 to come and, and give some public speaking. But unfortunately, Daesh were kind of circling the town at this stage. It would later become their caliphate. He had tried negotiating the release of prisoners before and it was successful. Mm -hmm. um, and he'd said he'd said in 2012, you know, I've been wearing this hat of Islamic Christian dialogue, religious dialogue for years. Is this going to work in reality or not? Okay, is it theoretical or is it practical? So I'm going to test it. Hmm. And he did. It was successful. And when he went into Al-Raqqa the second time, it wasn't because he just completely disappeared. He, he stopped answering text messages, his phone. Uh, uh, there was no signal. And... Um, and as I said, Daesh or ISIL were, were in the area. Um, so, you know, that was that that's 10 years ago now. Mm. Um, his anniversary actually is coming up in July and um, nobody has been found, um, which must be absolutely heartbreaking for his family, you know. Um, there's no closure there for those people and uh, which is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, this is literally, it was around the time 10 years ago that he disappeared or he stopped being heard from that oh. I started to search his name and realized that he was not accounted for out there. And I actually didn't know, I didn't, I learned from your book that he helped negotiate the Pope's visit to Damascus. He did. Yeah, he did. He was very instrumental in that actually. Um, uh, and uh, that, that would kind of typify his kind of whole idea of, of dialogue, you know, really feeding into that. Um, they wanted a kind of a common prayer to be kind of said in Umayyad Mosque, but it, it mm. didn't end up happening in the end because the Saudis got a little bit hot and bothered about it, and um, you know, saying that there'd be an unbeliever, uh, you know, in the mosque saying these kind of prayers. But but generally, it was a very successful, um, you know, visit. 
it was the first time a, a pontiff uh, had had been in a in a, in, a, in, a, in a mosque like that. So it was a, it was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it made, it made headlines, and even in the history of Christendom and its rivalry with Islam, it was it was a remarkable event. And I had no idea that Father Paolo had helped uh, make that happen. And so it's 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 a strange thing where, like, one moment this this gruff guy who runs the monastery is cleaning your dog bite wound, and then a few years later you realize that he's he was <laughs> instrumental Absolutely. in uh, having the Pope come, and then also that he took he took very. Um, active measures towards peacekeeping and um, he helping did. people who'd been disenfranchised. I, I'm curious to know that process, and do you think he made some overconfident moves or some bad moves in those, in oh, those he last few years? Did. Yeah, he made some really bad moves. He, um, I mean, he oversimplified things a little bit, I think, uh, because I talked to some political analysts as part of the a part of my research for the book, and you know, he was he, he was asking for you know a group of UN peacekeepers to come in. Um, you know, 500 of them on the ground to safeguard the protesters and safeguard hmm. uh, the Syrian people and everything. But, you know, it's a very, very complex area. There's intelligence services there. Um, it, I, I think he was a little bit politically naive, I would say. Um, I mean, he had a good heart. He had he, he had good intentions and everything. But I think he he he, he over oversimplified things. Definitely, you know, Um but uh, talking about the whole idea of sacrifice and martyrdom, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by that because I feel like um, I think there's a lot of parallels here with this. Have you ever seen the Xavier Bouveau movie of gods and men? Oh, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. What's yes. it about? It's a 2010 oh, French movie. Oh, it's about monks in, in North Africa, it's right? It's a group of Trappist monks in Algeria during the Civil yeah. War, basically, who are in, in, among a majority of Muslim villagers and who are threatened by Muslim extremists, and they decide to stay, basically. Hmm. Um, so <clears throat> I'm thinking of Paolo, and I'm thinking, you know, he kind of knew what he was getting into in same way, in, in some way, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's a few parallels here. There's a guy called Father Jack Maraud, who was in a place called Al-Kariatan in, in Syria as well, mm-hmm. who actually decided to stay with his parishioners and who was kidnapped by Daesh and tortured brutally and only escaped out of sheer luck. Uh, and there was also a guy called Father Franz van der Lut from Homs who decided to stay with his parishioners and was eventually uh, executed by... by um, by by uh, Islamist extremists. Mm. And I think the difference here is that these guys chose to stay with their parishioners and, and Paolo maybe kind of like was a little bit more kind of like into the limelight and he liked the kind of attention and everything and he liked the rabble rousing and um, yeah, maybe he, he he actually openly admitted he was quite a vain man and stuff like that. So, but again, I feel like those kind of weaknesses just kind of highlight his humanity almost in a way, you know, but just in terms of doing nothing with regards to evil, you know, um, he said, I'm not suited for silence. Words force their way out of me. Um, and, uh, you know, um, there, there's a lot of, where does rationale and common sense end here? And where does recklessness begin? You know, hmm. um, the pursuit of truth and moral courage is that kind of, is that, does that trump everything else? Um, you know, if you, if you put yourself in harm's way and he actually put it, put other people in harm's way as well in some ways, because probably a lot of, uh, his colleagues in, in Marmusa probably didn't want that much attention, you hmm. know? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So can you endanger others in in the name of moral courage and, and, and the pursuit of truth for yourself? There's a lot of kind of questions that remain kind of unanswered here, really, you know. I mean, he did what he thought was right for the Syrian community. But I think, um, as a lot of people, as a few people said in the book, I think maybe Father Franz and Father Jack, uh, maybe they're... I don't know, them staying with the parishioners. And uh, I mean, Paolo was basically looking for trouble going in there, you know, um, and he found it. Well, it feels like maybe his community was, it was local for sure, but it was also global. I mean, there were backpackers from every continent in the world when I was there. And I think that Syria is such a complicated place because you were talking about, you know, um, him helping bringing the Pope to the Umayyad Mosque. Well, mm-hmm. the, the Saudis, another a completely other country, really didn't like that. And I remember the headlines at the time, there yeah. was such an uncomplicated, there was su- such a simplistic understanding of Islam in the United States that a lot of American media was saying, why is the Pope doing this? You know, Islam are the bad guys. You know, there, there was such a simplistic, holistic understanding around the world of what was happening there that in a way, Father Paolo's community may have been more global than these guys who had more specific um, uh, parishes and it actually is this a quote that from uh, from Falapello? He said that human culture is syncretic in nature. Was that him or yeah, somebody else? Yeah, yeah, it is actually. He said like that uh, people were like uh, you know you should be like kind of bees, you know, pollinating lots of different flowers, mm. having lots of different experiences, maybe lots of different religions. I mean, he was into Zen Buddhism. Mm. Uh, as I said, he was into Sufism, and uh, you know, he was he, he was Japanese flute music. I mean, he was a very a man a global man in the sense of, you know, he had a lot of different interests and everything like that. So, and I, and I completely agree with that element uh, of things, you know. Um, well, even like historically, I know that that um, a lot of the rituals of Islam were influenced by the Eastern Church uh, and they sort of resided side by side. And I know that uh, Father Paolo encouraged celebrating Ramadan as a form of Lent, is it maybe? And that he encouraged this syncretism, acknowledging that syncretism that we've always borrowed from each other in our religious traditions. And maybe there's more commonality than differences. But if we fall into our orthodoxies, we'll miss those similarities. Yeah, very much so. I think I, I, I kind of coined a term called kind of religious harmonization as opposed to syncretism, because syncretism is a kind of a bad mm. uh, connotation, certainly with some of the religious hierarchy, where it's kind of like a compromise or a watering down of religion. For sure. Uh, whereas, like, I think harmonization or enculturation is kind of a more positive spin on it. But yeah, you can borrow from lots of different things. Actually, the, the community had an idea to create like a, um, a, a, a shared worship space that was kind of like a cross between a church, a mosque and a, and a, a synagogue. Um, and they actually had an architect design uh, this kind of building, but obviously it never came to fruition because the war broke out and everything. But it was an interesting, interesting idea, quite ambitious, I would say. I don't know if it, if it would, would have worked, but uh, that's kind of where they were going with this, you know. Well, there were a lot of ideas. Was there a nunnery there when, when you visited no. So okay. basically, like the, the women were allowed uh, to like sisters and female travelers were allowed to stay eventually. Mm-hmm. And this was Paolo's kind of initiative. But um, but Bishop Daoud definitely pushed back against that initially. It was like the, he, he thought it was completely um, disrespectful and inappropriate to have women staying there with the monks. Mm-hmm. But uh, it kind of worked out pretty well in the end, because, you know, if your female travelers coming to stay with you, what better people to look after them than than. than and, you know, the sisters and the nuns. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting. There was probably the, the influence of travelers actually influenced the texture of that place. There was actually the buzz when I was there is that, oh, we're going to build a, uh, you know, a, a structure for the sisters. And, and I guess it didn't happen, but it sounds like that place was sort of ideas were being bandied about and a lot of ideals. And I mean, I think there were some ecological conferences and it, it was just a very idea it, as opposed to orthodoxies. It was very much full of ideas and, and potentials and uh, dialogue rather than debate. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the thing is, like I find with Christianity, sometimes it's all about taming nature. You know, huh. it's about exploiting and, uh, and 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 I think the the marmusa flavor of, of 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 Catholicism and Christianity was very much like Let, let's work with nature. Um, and they were fun. They were instrumental in getting the area around the monastery actually designated a, a national park. And huh. um, so there was lots of kind of very positive. Um, you know, initiatives that they kind of took part in. They were, they were also very instrumental in a construction, cross-religious construction projects when some of the towns were, were, were damaged by fighting and stuff. So you had, you had Christians and Muslims working together to rebuild homes of other Christians and Muslims, you know. And this was a great kind of success story. Um, so there was lots of very positive, uh, good news stories like that. Paolo has been missing for 10 years. What is Dermar Musa like now? Yeah, well, I, I, there was a newsletter that was released um, uh, a few years ago, and they said that, you know, people were starting to come back because, I mean, Assad basically kind of secured the central and southern parts of the country, but there were still, I mean, Idlib and stuff like that uh, was still, there was still a bit of uh, instability there. So I think in 2018, I read a newsletter that said that, you know, um, people were starting to come back um, and uh, there was some semblance of normality again, which was nice after, you know, seven years of, of war and bloodshed, you know. Um, I would love to go back, but um, I don't think Syria uh, is a safe place for anyone who is a journalist or a writer or um, who's kind of writing about these things. And I would feel very uncomfortable going back there, which kind of which was which is really upsetting, actually. But I I don't feel that I can really get back there anytime, anytime soon. Well, as, as a final thought here, what would you mm -hmm. reckon is the legacy of Father Paolo's work in Syria and as it connected to people who were coming and going through through the through the monastery, um, I think his legacy is is alive. Um, I mean, I hope it would uh, through the work of the uh, the other uh, monks and, and nuns who are, are, are who are still there. Um, I think uh, that uh, he he started something that has taken on momentum and. And that was a beacon uh, for, you know, interreligious understanding in the region and, and, and around the greater region maybe as well. I hope that when things come back to normal in Syria that um, people will continue to go there and learn about Paolo and learn about uh, what he did. I'm afraid that he, he is dead. I, I don't think um, he's going to ever be found. Um, I mean, did, you know, did he fancy himself a kind of a saint? I don't know. But, uh, but you know, I think, you know, Jesus' disciples were martyred because they'd been accepted by God. And I think it was about truth and stuff and, and, and they were willing to die for it. So I feel like Paolo is kind of going down that road, you know, and, 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 and I kind of embraced it and, and embraced his fate. Um, I think he'd be more, he'd be more effective, though, 
you know, alive, convincing, antagonizing people, pissing them off, cajoling them, roaring at them, laughing with them, convincing people. This is where his 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 great uh, talents lay, and and I think um, it's it's a real real shame that um, he's not around with us anymore because I think he was just getting started. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Sean O'Neill's book, A Church of Islam, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>